0: Oh, good morning, church. How are we all this morning? Good. So, as you know, we're going through—or you might not know if you're a visitor, or if this is your first time here for a while. We're going through a series in the book of One Thessalonians. Um, I think this is our sixth week, and we've got to chapter two, verses thirteen to sixteen. But as, obviously, all good preachers do, I wanted to start by giving you a bit of context. Or actually, I'm going to actually get you to do the context today. And there will be chocolates. Mm -hmm. Helen has a microphone and chocolates. She's promising me she won't start eating them until she's given some to you. (laughs) So we're going to start. First question, easy one. You should all know this. Who wrote the Book of Thessalonians? If you stick your hand up, don't ask Andrew. <laughs> Paul. Paul did indeed write one of Thessalonians. We know that because he starts his letter um, by telling us. It says Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But who did he write it to? Another easy one. Church in Thessalonica. Yeah, the church in Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is in northern Greece, what we used to, what we used to call Macedonia. Paul visited there on his second missionary journey, um, which started in Antioch in Syria. And as, as Peter Levers pointed out in his sermon, it followed the path that the refugees come today, so through Turkey across into Greece. Um, his first stop there was in Philippi. And then he moved on. He was arrested and spent some time in jail in Philippi. And then he moved on to Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, he went to Berea. In Berea, he was, uh, again, chased out. Um, And he went on to Athens, where he was laughed at by some Greek philosophers. He ended up in Corinth after that, where he probably wrote Thessalonians. So he's had a bit of a, a rough patch as Paul. He's had some real successes. But he's been chased out of city after city. And so he comes and he, uh, he writes this letter back to the church that he'd, he'd recently founded. Um, and so the third question, a little bit trickier this time, but what are some of the themes and ideas we've seen so far that Paul has brought out? If we could ask people that haven't preached on it <laughs> first, that would be, that would be good. But you know... If, if that's all I'm going to get, then <laughs> any answers? Live to, God. live to please God. Thank you, Reg. Ooh, to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to live to please God. He, he does this. Uh, he also says that he has lived to please God. And One of the key themes of the first couple of chapters in, in, Thessalonians, in Thessalonians is Paul defending his ministry from attack. Presumably after he'd left, after he'd been run out, the the, the opponents of his gospel in Thessaloniki had started bad mouthing him. And so one of the purposes of the first two chapters, first three chapters of the book, is to establish that he lived to please God. And we also read that the Thessalonians came to imitate him, lived to please God. So that's one any more? I hope that Jesus will return again and his his second coming. Yes and that's a theme that's going to be developed later on in the book in chapter four we go into a bit more detail about that. Um, Did you get a uh, did you get a sweet Helen? I can't see where you are. Here you are sorry. Cool any more? There's one big, big theme that we've missed out. He starts the letter with it. Anton, Andrew, Anthony, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew preached on it. Turning away from idols. Turning away from idols. Yes, and this is part of pleasing God. He, we really get a sense that the Thessalonian church has changed. They, Paul has seen a real change in their lives. Um, that's come after they've received his word. One more, any more? We'll do one more. He's not preached yet. He's he's coming coming up in two weeks. (laughs) Their their faith, love, and hope in Jesus Christ. Mm. So, again, the Thessalonian Church is really demonstrating what it is to be a good church. They are a model, It's Paul says in verse 1, they're a model to the, church in Mas- the churches in, in Macedonia and Achaia. The one I think we've, we've missed, and the one that we pick up at the start of, of chapter 13, is that Paul is really, really thankful for the Thessalonian church. He's really thankful It's a theme that runs through the first three chapters of the book. Um, I think that gives an indication of, of really the persecution that they had come under. Paul is really worried about them. He's so worried, in fact, that he sends Timothy off to go and check on them. And when Timothy brings back news of their continuing faith, it is all that Paul can do to praise God and thank God for the Thessalonian church. So let's turn to chapter 2, verse 13, and we'll read. I'm reading from the NIV. And Paul says, we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, so they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So the passage really splits into two halves. The first half... and actually following Peter Laver's example. I'm going to work through them backwards. The first half really carries on what we've seen Paul already saying. Um, he is thankful for the Thessalonian church because they've received the word as the word of God. But I want, I want to start firstly with... Just a little a quick look at chapters as at verses fifteen and sixteen because um, they're not the easiest of verses to to read, to understand. In fact, those two verses have been one of the key proof texts to support Christian anti-Semitism through the centuries. It's not hard to see why. Paul accuses the Jews of killing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an accusation that anti-Semites have made against the Jews for thousands of years, often with bloody repercussions. And he says that they displease God and that the wrath of God is on them. Now, you'll be be pleased to hear that this is probably going to be the heaviest bit of my sermon, so stay with me. I, I, I want to deal with this fairly quickly, but I do want to deal with it. Because anti-Semitism is not a problem of the past, it's a problem in modern society. In the UK, last year, a parliamentary report cited surveys that that suggested one in 20 of the population, that's 5%, holds views that could be categorised as clearly anti-Semitic. The Community Security Trust, which records crimes against Jews and Jewish sites, recorded 1309 In 2016, that's an all-time high. And while most of them were verbal, there were 109 violent assaults on Jews. So anti-Semitism is a reality. It's a reality in this country. It's a reality around the world. I mean, who can forget seeing the swastika flying in Charlottesville at the far-right rally? But it is, I believe, a fundamentally flawed interpretation of this text. Paul is not criticizing all Jews here. He's criticizing a very specific group of people. I believe he's he's calling out the ruling elite based in Judea and in Jerusalem, who are actively working against the gospel. Not all Jews. We have to remember that the church was, at the time, mainly Jewish. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The twelve disciples were Jews. To say that this passage somehow justifies the persecution of all Jews at all time is wrong. As I said, Paul's point here is to call out those who were opposing the spread of the gospel and persecuting the church. And if we bring that into the modern period, perhaps one way of looking at it is that we must be prepared to defend ourselves against our right to preach the gospel in a society in which the gospel is increasingly offensive. So as I said, that was probably the heaviest part of the sermon. But I think we have to deal with it. We have to deal with it because anti-Semitism is part of the church's heritage. It's actually a big stumbling block for many Jews who would be believers. And so we have to come to terms with it. We have to come to terms with the texts that have been used to justify it. And we have to learn to love our Jewish brothers after all, it was to them that Jesus came first to give the gospel. But that was really just an extended aside for the next kind of 15 minutes or so. I want to look at, look at the idea that, ideas that we see in the first two verses of the passage, 13 and, and 14, and, the, and specifically the idea that the Thessalonian church received The word, that is, the gospel, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So first of all, as I said, the the word they're, they're talking about, I think, is the gospel. That's the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi, is the son of God who was incarnated in order to take the punishment for our sins. That's our rebellion against God so that we could take his place within the family of God. That's, in a nutshell, what the Thessalonian church had accepted and they'd accepted it as the word of God. And having done so, we read in in chapter 1, verse 6, that they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to suggest that we look briefly at what being an imitator of Jesus and of Paul actually means. And I've got three words, like all good preachers, three words that begin with W to take us through this. And actually, they're going to link in with some of what has already been bought this morning. So three words, word, works, and wonders. I may not be much new in what I have to say today, but my prayer is that we would be challenged and you, to look at our Christianity and ask God how we can go deeper into him in order that we might have a greater impact within our church and within our community. So the first word is word or scripture or this, Bible. Both Jesus and Paul placed a really high value on knowing the scriptures. Jesus often quoted from them and showed an intimate knowledge of the the scriptures he had at that time. And in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And the New Testament is built on that heritage of the Jewish scriptures. And it's Jesus' story. The Old Testament points to him, the New Testament points back to him. The word, these words, point to the word. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the cause of the New Testament. If we want to know him more, we must become more familiar with this book. And however long you've been reading it, there's always more that you can learn. Paul similarly valued the scripture. He was a Pharisee. He would have had most of it, if not all of it memorized. And he quotes it liberally in his letters, not least his letter to the Romans, and he also appreciated that the word and a knowledge of the word empowered our works. In what 2 Timothy three fourteen to 17, it says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, And training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Knowing the word of God equips us to do the works of God. Phil Moore is a pastor and theologian. He's written a commentary on on Thessalonians. Um, Tells a story of of when he went hunting for rabbits at his father-in-law's farm. Uh, He was hunting with an air rifle. And after a futile morning with absolutely no rabbits to his name, he actually managed to hit one. Moore writes, The rabbits sprang back in surprise, looked at me accusingly, then carried on eating the contents of my father-in-law's field. I suddenly realized that I'd been hitting rabbits all morning, but my air rifle was too small a caliber to do anything more than annoy them. Morse's sees in this a parallel for Christians who long to see more of God's work in their lives and through them into the world. He carries on that it is easy to assume that Paul was so effective because he received a download of God's power quite by chance. But the New Testament insists that if we want God to entrust us with bigger bullets, bullets that are actually going to kill the rabbits, if you like, we need to increase the caliber of our understanding. Christians need to be enlightened by the studying of the Bible and by treating it as the word of God. If we do this, we will be able to handle the firepower God longs to give us. Within modern society, even within parts of the church, study of the Bible has fallen out of fashion. The Bible is under both direct and indirect attack Direct attack by those, even some within the church, that pour doubt on its truth or mock its claims. In a post-truth, fake news world, the Bible's claim to truth are at best unfashionable and at worst deeply offensive. But there's also a more subtle attack, an indirect attack that comes from simply the quantity of distractions that we live through in the modern world, we have never before been bombarded by so many words as we are today. And within all that noise, it's easy to miss the Bible's message. And let's face it, this is Satan's oldest lie. Did God really say? He asked in Eden he led Adam and Eve to doubt the word of God and in doing so, he led them into hell. And he's been doing it ever since. And in today's modern society, whether it be from Richard Dawkins to Facebook, he has more tools in his armory to prevent Christians from really getting into the word of God. And so the question is, what is distracting you from the word? We've got to get this foundation right because it forms the basis for the other two w works words that we're going to look at now works and wonders so works the second way that we can imitate Paul and Jesus is in our lifestyle our lifestyle is key it can underline or undermine the gospel i'll say that again our lifestyle can underline or undermine the gospel. Paul understood this. He spends much of chapter two of one, of 1 Thessalonians defending his behavior while in Thessaloniki. He knew that if the enemies of the gospel in Thessaloniki could discredit him, they could discredit his gospel. He kind of summarizes this defense in verse 10. When he says that you, that is the Thessalonian church, are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believed. It's a high standard, but it's a standard that I think Paul calls us to today. In, in Philippians 4 verses 6, Paul provides us a bit more detail of the lifestyle he expects of both himself and of other followers of Christ. We should aspire to whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, writes Paul. As I said, the standard is high, but Paul, I think, believed it was attainable. How? Well, it's to do with a change that occurs within us when we first accept Christ and his work for us on the cross. A guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor and martyr during World War II, wrote that when Christ calls us, he bids, or calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die it's not the sort of thing you want to read on a dinner invitation It'll probably give you some pause to thought before accepting it but it is the invitation of the gospel it is the example of jesus and paul in matthew 16 jesus says to his disciples that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow him for whoever wants to save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for me We'll, say, we'll find it. It's a theme of Paul's letters in Galatians. Paul says that he's been crucified with Christ and no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. In Romans 6, Paul says that we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free. We can attain this Philippians 4 lifestyle because we have died and Jesus lives in us that is ultimately what baptism symbolizes it's not a washing but a dying when we come out of the water we come out not clean but dead and if we are dead then all of the sinful desires that our old selves went through are no longer valid on us we no longer have to listen to our old self. Now, of course, there is a problem here, and that is our old selves don't like dying. They have a tendency to wander around like zombies, messing things up. I know that I still let my old sinful self, zombie Jonathan, wander around, corrupting everything he touches. I still crave The things I know to be wrong, but that zombie Jonathan really quite likes. Even though I know zombie Jonathan is dead, I seem unable to let him die. The good news is that Paul felt exactly the same. In Romans 7, we read, So I, that is Paul, find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That wretched man I am, who will rescue me from the body that is, that is subject to death? And then he concludes, Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The challenge of the passage is that it's time to let our zombies go, however hard that might be, and to let Jesus live more and more in us. So that brings us to wonders. To the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is obviously the ultimate example of this. He, he both performed miracles daily, hourly maybe, But he also had performed on himself the greatest wonder that history has ever seen. God raised him from the dead. But wonders also seem to be a part of what Jesus expected of his disciples. In his gospel, Luke recalls that when Jesus sent out 72 disciples, he told them that when they entered a town, they should heal the sick and then tell them the kingdom of God has come. Interestingly, the wonders, the signs of the kingdom come before the preaching. I think that's something that's a pattern that we see in in Paul as well. Paul showed people the gospel in his own life, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as preaching it. And Paul's own life was marked by an openness to the supernatural. We read in in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, that Paul's gospel came to the Thessalonians not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Similarly, in Acts eighteen eleven, we read that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even if his handkerchiefs and aprons were brought to the sick, they would be healed, that evil spirits would leave them. And we even read in Acts 20 of Paul raising up a young man, a young man who had fallen asleep, during one of Paul's sermons, as a father of three, including one seven-week-old, falling asleep during a sermon is something I can appreciate, um, but this young man happened to be sat in a window, an open window, on the third floor, and he fell off, fell out the window, died. We read that Paul went down, threw himself on him, and raised him. In a world that worships the altar of science and materialism. The idea that God in the person of the Holy Spirit works supernaturally in the lives of his followers can be a daunting one. In fact, it's an idea that much of the Western church has rejected. But I believe it should be a part of the normal and healthy Christian life. A normal part of seeing God's kingdom established here on earth. I thought you'd like that bit, Reg. Simon Holly, pastor of King's Arm Church in Bedford, has long sought to create that healthy culture of supernatural within the church. It's actually the subtitle of his book, Sustainable Power, which I would recommend, particularly if you're in any way skeptical about the supernatural. In his book, Holly writes. That in his experience, most Christians, and I include, he includes himself, struggle not from expecting too much of God, but from expecting too little. We've seen on our journey as a church that a growing understanding of the size, scope, and power of the kingdom has transformed our expectations of life. It's time to pray afresh, Your kingdom come. So these three words, word, works and wonders marked the lives of Jesus and Paul they marked the lives of the Thessalonian church who imitated Jesus and Paul do they mark our church do they mark your life do they mark my life and it can be hard to hold all three in balance as a result most churches and most Christians will tend to, to major in one of them maybe two of them but when the Christian, when the church can grasp hold of all three, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can withstand us. In an introduction to the life of Charles Spurgeon, a great 19th century preacher, a writer called Arnold Dalimore writes of an army of God being raised. And with this, I come into land. And what manner of people will this army be? People mighty in the scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty and holiness of God. And their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be people who have learned what it is like to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions. They will be people who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood. Who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the Master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment throne. They will be people who preach with broken hearts and tear filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit, and whose witness signs and wonders following is the transformation of multitudes of human lives. We're going to come to communion now. But as we accept the symbols, the the blood and the wine, not the blood and the wine, the bread and the wine, the symbols of Christ's death into our bodies, it's an opportunity to accept the truth of the gospel into our lives again. To commit to living lives that reflect the word, that live it out in works and that leaves space for the wonders. We can join that unstoppable army of God. Let's pray.